Initializing now. You are listening to Intellectual Icebergs, October 18th, 2005, show number four. Today's topics are IP version 6 and leadership. For comments or questions, you can email us at comments at intellectualicebergs.org. Here's your host, Tiffany Rapplin. Welcome to the fourth episode of Intellectual Icebergs. I'm Tiffany Raplin, and I'm filling in as host today since our regular host, Jim Vance, was otherwise occupied. For this first segment, we're going to be talking with Robert Rapland about IP version 6, IPv6. So tell me, what is IPv6? IP stands for Internet Protocol, and it's the lowest level of software protocol that the Internet runs on just above the hardware. Essentially, IP is how anything on the Internet gets from one place to another. Other protocols like TCP and UDP sit on top of IP, and you'll hear them referred to as, for instance, TCP IP. Then protocols like HTTP runs on top of TCP and its friends. IP is responsible for wrapping up the data like a package and labeling it with all the information it needs to get to its destination before it gets pushed through the hardware. The Internet's currently running under version 4 of the Internet Protocol. It was developed in the late 70s to early 80s as a way of sharing information between military and research facilities. Since then, our use of the Internet has exceeded the creator's expectations in many ways. Four billion addresses seemed like a lot at the time, but the popularity of the Internet has made it totally inadequate. We use IP for purposes that require security that IP just wasn't designed to provide. Additionally, we've started using IP for more of our communications needs, including telephone and television, and this results in unforeseen traffic issues. IP6 has been created as a replacement to IP4 to address all of those issues and a few others. Can you tell us a little more about the address space depletion and how IPv6 solves this? Oh, sure. As any pack rat knows, organization takes space. The Internet has to remain totally organized for us to find the sites we want to look at. Because of this organizational need, an address space of 4 billion really only provides about 200 million actual addresses. In order to get even this many addresses, we've had to chop it into a lot of tiny chunks referred to as contiguous address spaces. Routers are basically the postal service of the Internet. They make sure that the information anyone sends out actually gets to the computer that it's addressed to. Routers have to keep track of where all of these contiguous address spaces are so they can send the packets in the right direction. As the Internet gets more and more crowded, we have to chop up the address space finer and finer to pack in more of them, and this makes for more work for the routers. In the past three years, the number of spaces that routers have to keep track of has quadrupled, now exceeding 160,000. The need to search through these spaces for the one that this address exists in slows down the entire Internet. IP6 solves this problem in two ways. First, it includes an address space that is huge. Talking in terms of what we might possibly want to use IP6 for in the future, this covers our needs for both cooperative nanomachine colonies and near-space exploration. Second, IPv6 includes something called auto-discovery. One of the reasons that the IP4 address space is so thoroughly chopped up is because it's a magnificent pain to readdress a bunch of computers. With IPv6, any size of network can be readdressed with a minimum of effort. 
This means that an IPv6 internet would be all one single contiguous address space, completely doing away with the need for router tables for any purpose besides keeping track of shortcuts. But isn't network address translation supposed to fix this problem? No, network address translation or NAT is really just a stopgap measure. It has limited ability to provide new addresses and prevents the use of other technologies like swarming content distribution. When considering the scope of the IP address shortage, it's necessary to remember that Americans are pretty spoiled in this department. Over three-quarters of the available addresses have been allocated to the United States, all for its own use. By comparison, China, Korea, and Japan are already close to exhausting NAT's ability to supply them with address. Europe is also suffering from the pinch because of their heavy saturation of web-enabled cell phones. Now, one of the things about the IPv6 shift is that those on IPv6 can access IPv4 sites without effort, but anyone still stuck on IPv4 won't be able to access a pure IPv6 site. We don't start thinking about switching soon. We could put ourselves in a situation where we have to change over in a hurry just to maintain commerce with the rest of the world. Now, you mentioned that IPv6 solves other problems as well, and we've talked about it in the past. You specifically listed encryption, quality of service, security, and multicasting. So let's start with encryption. Sure. Although I should state that unlike the address depletion and router table size problems, all of these have other solutions that are already in use. Encryption, for instance, can be done through secure socket layers at the TCP level, and SSL is already an industry-wide standard. IPv6 would provide encryption at a lower protocol level, but this wouldn't make your credit card numbers any more or less secure. What it would do is make it easier to hide internal structure of your network when passing packets through the internet at large. It would also provide a standardized IP level mechanism for virtual private networks. Okay, so what does quality of service mean? Quality of service is simply a way of guaranteeing that a particular application has bandwidth when it needs it. This is going to become increasingly important as we start to combine all of our communications paths. Sooner than you think, most people will be getting their telephone, television, and internet all over a single shared link. Efficiencies and scale pretty much dictate this. Quality of service will make sure that your telephone call doesn't get dropped and your TV picture doesn't die when your teenager powers up Quake 6. This has already been implemented by various proprietary networks. The problem is that due to a lack of standards, it's impossible to implement it across the web as a whole, and IPv6 provides an avenue for this. Why is IPv6 more secure than IPv4? Well, because of the expanded address space, they've been able to allocate address and address formats that specifically state things like, this packet should never leave the subnet, or this packet should never leave our site. It also has a standard protocol for source verification so that it's impossible for people to send out packets with return addresses that aren't actually where the packet came from. This all by itself will allow us to track down spammers and zombie machines and completely prevent a common form of security exploit. Although this could be accomplished with a thorough network of trusted firewalls, the distributed nature of the internet makes that a near impossibility. And multicasting? Oh, multicasting is a really cool feature of IPv6. It's entirely replacing IP broadcasting by specifically including IP addresses that mean things like this is a message to all routers or this is a message to all hosts. It also allows for a set of IP addresses that can be used for efficient routing of messages to multiple points across the internet proper. Today, if you want to send things to multiple people, you have to either just do it across your local network via proprietary format, or you'd have to send out as many copies of it as you have recipients. With multicasting, the server would send out a single packet with a special multicast address, 
Clients would let the routers between it and the server know that it was a destination for that specific multicast address. When a router receives a packet, it would know to look at its multicast tables to figure out what direction or directions it needed to send that packet. A significantly reduced size of router tables will allow IPv6 networks to route these packets with an efficiency that's impossible for IP version 4. So why would a company want to switch to IPv6? People outside the United States won't take much convincing. They just don't have enough IP addresses to go around. Inside the U.S., there are a number of good reasons, but few of them are really compelling enough to completely revamp your network infrastructure. I'm expecting early adopters to be new installations that use all IPv6-capable hardware because they don't want to have to upgrade it all in another five years. Another strong candidate are those combined cable internet telephony providers simply to take advantage of IP6's efficiencies and multicasting and quality of service. Beyond that, anyone who's heavily reliant upon government contracts should follow the government's transitioning program. Right now they're mandating that every government system that's capable of doing so should shift over to IPv6 capable equipment before mid-2008. How is this transition expected to happen? How do we get there from here? The key to this is understanding network address translation, or NAT. This is commonly how a company uses a block of 256 addresses to serve 5,000 corporate systems. On the inside of the NAT gateway, you'd have a completely independent IPv4 environment with its own internal numbering system. When these systems make requests to the internet at large, the NAT gateway maps that person's address to a block of ports on the exterior IP addresses. From the perspective of the internet, it's a small number of machines making a lot of requests. From the perspective of the machines, it's just another IP network. IPv6 has something called NAT-PT. The PT stands for Protocol Translation. This works exactly like NAT from the perspective of the internet. The network inside the gateway, however, is running pure IPv6. Clients that need to make requests to the outside world use a special type of address called a 6 to 4 address, and the gateway translates that into an address on the IPv4 internet. This idea leaves a couple of holes which are plugged via things called dual stacks and tunneling. One of the problems that any NAT gateway has is that it doesn't support servers without some fiddling. You have to tell it that a request to a specific port at a specific address should be mapped to a specific server machine behind the NAT gateway. NAT-PT has this problem, but it also has the problem that an IPv4 client can't make requests from an IPv6 server. DualStack solved this problem by allowing a server to have both an IPv6 and an IPv4 address. Basically, if the machine receives an IPv4 packet, it processes it through that stack. If it receives an IPv6 packet, it processes that through the IPv6 stack. This allows it to respond to requests from anywhere. The other hole is, how does someone behind a NAT wall access other IPv6 sites? Obviously, if it's translating everything to IPv4, then it suffers the same problem as something that's on an IPv4 network in the first place. This particular problem is fixed through 6 over 4 tunneling. Put simply, it takes an IPv6 packet, stuffs it into an IPv4 packet, and then passes that over the IPv4 network to the rest of the IPv6 network which then gets it where it needs to go. This is almost identical to virtual private networking. Through these three technologies, we can smoothly transition everyone over to IPv6 without anyone losing connectivity with anyone else. How long will it take for the entire world to switch to IPv6 then? That depends on what you call the entire world. It's estimated that it'll take longer than the entire history of the Internet for IPv4 to go away completely. In human years, that's about 2040 or so. Realistically speaking, you can spot the oldest piece of networking hardware around and assume that the stuff purchased today will all be replaced in about that much time. By that perspective, it'll all be gone by around 2030. 
But that's really talking about how long it'll take for all the little pieces to be replaced. If you're talking about how long it's going to take until we have a almost completely IP6 network with just a few small patches of IP4 here and there, then you're probably talking about a shift that'll take about 15 years. All right, Rob. Thank you. I think you gave us plenty to think about. Well, thank you. The world in our minds represents our best guess at the world around us. This world is a maze of concepts, ideas, attitudes, and beliefs. If the world in our head isn't accurate, then we regularly bump into walls, sometimes very painfully. Some people who do this decide that the walls hate them and are out to get them. But that's not what this interlude is about. We are the architects of the world around us. We regularly adjust our world to make it more suitable to our needs. Sometimes this conflicts with a world that is suitable to other people's needs. The less accurate our vision of the world is, the more likely we are to accidentally build features into our world that result in harm to others. Some people take this as evidence of their own superiority. But that's not what this interlude is about either. While attempting to understand the world around us, one of our greatest tools is watching others attempt to understand the world around us. By benefiting from their experiences, learning from their mistakes, we increase our understanding of the world by several orders of magnitude. Unfortunately, nobody's understanding of the world is perfect. In order to understand the conclusions that people have come to, it is necessary to understand why they came to those conclusions. This becomes an iterative process. You develop many sources of information so that your understanding of the world has as little bias as possible. You then apply this understanding to your sources so that you can better understand their bias and adjust the information you get from them accordingly. You then use this new information to adjust your understanding again. Repeat this often and add in new sources as you find them and you develop a very refined understanding of the world around you and the people who inhabit it. This to me is the essence of skepticality. This interlude is dedicated to Derek and Swoopy and all of the correspondents at the Skepticality Podcast. Visit them at www.skepticality.com. to Intellectual Icebergs. I'm your fill-in host today, Tiffany Raplin, and the guest I have with me is someone, if you listen to episode three, you've heard from before. This is Steve Holdquist. Welcome, Steve. Hi, Tiffany. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks. Glad to have you back. Steve, you're talking to us today about something very different. You're talking to us about leadership. That's right. So let's start off. What do you mean when you talk about leadership? Well, leadership, at least the way that I'm going to talk about it today, is guiding or coaching a person or a group of people to accomplish some set of objectives or goals. One of the things that I noticed when I looked at your website is that you talk about leadership happening at multiple levels. What do you mean by that? Well, if what we're talking about is guiding people to achieve goals, I think there's a number of 
ways we can look at that. One of them is personal leadership, which I think is pretty interesting. And then there's family, so marriage or your siblings or your family and your kids. And then team, which is where we start to get into what we tend to do day-to-day in our jobs or whatever. And then organizations, groups of teams, and so on. What about that first one, personal leadership? Yeah, I think that one's very interesting. I think a lot of times we don't stop and think about getting to the goals that we have. How, do we, how are we going to reach those objectives and what's it going to take? Have you ever gotten to the point where you have something you say you want to do or you've made a goal or you've said, I'm, I, I'm going to reach that thing, and you find yourself not doing the things that you know are going to get you there? Well, why is that? Why is that? And, and what do you need to do to overcome whatever those roadblocks are? That's, I think, where leadership comes in. And who better to lead each of us individually than ourselves? Excellent. And then across the four, across personal, family, team, and organizational leadership, are there common leadership concepts that we see? There certainly are, and that's one of the things that led me to the model, is that I think we can learn to lead ourselves in a very similar way that we learn to lead teams of people and, and other people that we're around. And in some ways, for some of us, I think personal leadership would be most difficult. But an example would be the motivational process. How do we, how are people motivated and how do we uh, get ourselves up to accomplish that thing that, that we say we want to do? What is that process of motivation then? Well, I think the, the key to it is our emotional commitments. What are the things that we care about? What are the things underlying our lives that are important enough to us that we've bought into them emotionally and like, I'm willing to do this? And finding those and then deciding how they tie into our objectives and our goals and those things we're trying to accomplish. That, I think, is the, is the motivational process, and, and that's part of the big work of leadership. Can you give us an example of that, then, of an emotional commitment? Well, sure. Emotional commitments, by the way, can, can be positive. They can help us do those things that, that we're trying to do, or they can actually get in the way. They can hinder us. So an example for many of us is we're committed to our families. We're committed that they're going to be okay, that they're safe, that they're healthy, that they're taken care of and financially have what they need. So that's an example of an emotional commitment. But there can be others. There can be those, those voices we hear from when we were kids that we believe that, that keep us, that hold us back, the ones that says, you're not going to amount to anything, or whatever it is for, for me and for you that will actually keep us from those objectives. And understanding both of those sets can help us make some decisions about how we're going to get to what we say is important. So then it sounds like what you're saying motivation is, is identifying those emotional commitments, positive or negative, in in the way that they affect me as a person, and then determining which ones I want to develop and which ones I want to eliminate? I think that's part of it, and it's very difficult, for example, to eliminate them. But the other half of that is tying those things that I'm committed to to what we're trying to accomplish. So we have a set of objectives as an organization or as a team. We're going to write this software program or or we're going to develop this product, or we're going to provide this service to our customers, or whatever it is that you do as a team. So we have these objectives. Well, so what's in it for me? Your team members might ask, or you might ask yourself, why should this be important to me? Why is it important to have happy customers? Why is it important that we accomplish this goal? What is it about it? And a a leader of a team, one of his or her primary roles is to figure that out so that she can help each member connect what they care about so passionately Two, what we do every day. Why do I have to write this manual? Why do I need to do this other thing and that other thing? And how, why, why does this matter to me? Well, it ties to something you care about. And that's the key part of the motivational process for a leader. 
That sounds like it's a little bit different than the way we're traditionally looking at leaders then. It's it's certainly different from the leader who's in the office and, and just gives me my work and I do the work and, and that's that. This sounds like it's a lot more personally involved. It certainly is. And that's what I call the work of leadership. Historically, leadership, in quotes, was primarily predicated on authority. Somebody could fire you. Somebody could make your life difficult. You know, back in the the days of monarchy, they could cut off your head, right? And so your primary motivation, emotional commitment you were dealing with was, you know, you want to live, you want to make a living, you know, those kind of core, low-level emotional commitments. Well, in the 21st century, many of those don't matter. It's easy to get another job. Most people move around a lot. Those kind of motivations are not effective anymore. And furthermore, they never were as effective as I think you want teams to be. Because Let's face it, if, if you're doing something because you fear the consequences of not doing it, how well do you do it? In comparison to doing something because it really matters to you and it's something that you care about. Well, imagine, and many of us, many of you have been on teams that are energized because you're doing something that you all care about. Well, what if every day was like that? That's the work of leadership and that's the consequence of good leadership. That's very intriguing, and it also sounds like like what you're talking about is developing a team or whoever you're leading and really getting the most out of their efforts, not even just having them engaged, but getting the most out of what they can do because they believe in it. Yes, and I'll change it a little bit. It's getting the most out of our efforts because that's the other part of this, right? It's the synergy of all of us really having bought in and really having it tied to things that we care about. Most of the time when you have teams that you think of that are so effective that you've been part of or that you've seen, most of the time that's because by some serendipity, by some relationships that they had, you got a team that had very similar emotional commitments. That makes it a little bit easier to build this kind of structure. The work of leadership isn't quite as difficult. The more diverse the group of people, the less they know about each other, all those kind of things, the more challenging the work of leadership becomes. But you can still get to that level of synergy if you take this path to it. One of the things I'd like to go back to for a minute is personal leadership. Is personal leadership a prerequisite to these other types of leadership? I don't think it's a prerequisite. Many leaders haven't really learned how to lead themselves. And I think one of the things that's interesting is as you learn to how to dig into other people, how to do the analysis, how to understand what motivates them, what their emotional commitments are, you begin to understand, I can probably do this with me. And I can probably answer some of these questions that are beginning to be of interest to me. And so I don't think it's a prerequisite, but I think that the two sides together can actually help each other. You learn more about how other people might tick by looking at yourself. And as you look at other people, you start to think, well, maybe I'm like that, or I think i got to find out where I'm coming from in terms of those commitments myself. Okay, so it's more a case that as you develop in one area of your life, your leadership skills, you're then probably more able to develop them in other areas, or maybe you are developing them in other areas. Yeah, I think since the skills are common across the levels, as you develop those skills in one of the areas, one of the levels, you can begin to apply it at the others. Then the next question I have for you is, how do I go about this? How do I start to learn how to do this? Well, you know, there's not a... There's not a strict list of things I'm going to tell you to do because the bottom line is this is about people and people are complex. But it's the, it's the act of listening, observing, and asking questions, beginning to find out, well, 
I saw you do this. What could be the reasons why you did this? And then maybe talking to you in a uh, obviously non-threatening way, that's the hard part, but talking to you about, well, what were your motivations for doing that? Why did you respond so emotionally to this situation? Or, or why is this so important to you? Or you talk a lot about this topic. I want to find out more about how that topic relates for you. And it could be everything from, you know, folks that have been on my staff in the past that loved horses to watching two people really go at it over a technology question. Well, why were they so bought in to their side of that? And then doing the work of analysis to say, okay, what's really here? And testing it, doing some experiments, asking them questions, trying out some things and seeing how it works. Actually sounds pretty scientific, pretty social scientific, I would say, with observation and then questioning and then the analysis. But it has to do with people. Exactly. And I think a lot of leaders, good leaders today, do this instinctively. They do it intuitively. They've not applied the science to it. And I think when we do, we'll get more effective. And our organizations and our groups of leaders and so on will get more effective at what we do. And that's what I'm excited about, seeing, seeing what can happen at that point. So then we've talked about the four levels of leadership having a lot of similarities in terms of skills, but what are the differences between the four, between the personal, the family, the team, and the organizational? Well, I think the most obvious difference is how intimate you are with those other people or the people you're leading. I shouldn't even say other because it could be yourself. How intimate are you? And, you know, there's the challenge of intimacy at both sides. When I don't know anybody very well, when I don't know somebody very well, it's more difficult for me to understand what motivates them. I have a lot more work to do. But when I know somebody very well, I have to be very careful about my preconceived ideas, about who they are and what they think and why they do things and, and so on. And learning to, to take on the science, as we just talked about, of analysis around what they care about and how can we begin then to work together and generate that kind of synergy at the different levels of intimacy, I think that's the challenge. And that's that's why things are different at those levels, and that's the areas that, that we'll examine a little bit more deeply, depending on what level we're talking about. Okay. And then also probably a matter of scale, going from the personal to the organizational, obviously, with more people. Certainly. The bigger that group is, the more you're working through other people, the more you're having to help them understand how to do this and how to communicate back to you what they're doing and what they're seeing and how, how the folks are wired, what matters to them. So my final question for you then is, for someone who maybe isn't interested in being an organizational leader, isn't looking to necessarily go to that level in the corporate world, where does this tie into their lives? Where is the importance for them? You know, I think fundamentally the joy in life comes from doing something with other people that you all really believe in. And you're doing it because, just because it's important and you like doing it together. Understand these concepts and applying them at whatever level you apply them to generate that level of synergy in a team is where all of us can contribute to what happens in a team. And I think when we understand that, hey, we're all human beings, we're all here to to achieve a certain set of things for ourselves, and we like to do it in a way that's fun for all of us, that fun at some level, something that we care about, that is what we can do if we begin to apply some of these concepts in the teams and the families with which we're associated. And that's the key thing for me. Excellent. Well, Steve, thank you very much for speaking with us today. It's my pleasure.
friends, welcome to the Virtual Command Environment. Hi, this is Rob. And this is Tiffany, and we are the producers of Intellectual Icebergs. And this is a new segment that we'll be including at the end of the show. And if you're not interested in the fluff, you can hit skip now and move on to the next podcast because we've finished with the meat of the show. That's right. If you just want to stuff your geekly brain, there ain't any more of that. But we are going to tell you what we're doing with intellectual icebergs in general and what we'll be doing with it in the future. IPv6 turned out to be a much more interesting topic than I thought it would be, and we're going to be doing a regular IP6 watch as the technology progresses over the next few years. So stay tuned, and you'll get to hear from various people who are implementing IP6 and have problems with it, and the people who are actually keeping track of how soon you're absolutely positively going to need to shift over. If you enjoyed our segment on leadership and you'd like more information about this topic, check out Steve Holtquist's website, which is infinitesummit.com. And we ordered brains, as if we didn't have any. <laughs> brains. Brains, brains. We're particularly fond of the Voltaire song, Brains, Brains, It's Okay. <laughs> it's not a matter if it isn't great. Which we actually wanted to play on this show, but unfortunately we don't have permission. Actually, Voltaire said we could play it. He did. He, sa- he said, I don't care, but it, I don't own the song, so Cartoon Network people probably won't hear it, but what the heck. We figured we better ask them first, so maybe, maybe in a future segment you'll be able to hear brains. Maybe. But for now, in case you're wondering what we're talking about, we decided we're going to go out and buy ourselves a heaping pile of brain squish balls. No, stress balls. Stress relief balls. Stress relief They don't balls. cause stress, they relieve it. That's right. So if you happen to be really stressed out about your boss, you can chuck it at him. That's right. These are to throw at the object of your stress. Yeah, they're, they're about three inches by two inches by two inches, and they're made out of the nice squishy foam, and they bounce really nicely off people's heads. They're little boo brains. And if you want one, all you have to do is go to our website and leave us a message. That's right. Or send us an email. Just tell us why you need a clue and we'll get one in the mail to you. Absolutely. And while you're there, if you happen to feel like commenting on anything else involving the show or life in general, then please do because, well, we've got this space and no one's using it, so what the heck. This is begging for feedback. Yeah. And one other thing, if you are interested in the Brain Song by Voltaire, since we can't play it yet and maybe never can, you can go to Project Records and... And check it out. It's on his Boohoo CD. I don't think you can download it for free, but hey, you can always buy the CD and support another semi-independent artist. And while we're on the subject of feedback, Intellectual Iceberg's general philosophy of podcasts is that we're attempting to put out as dense an information stream as possible. We also want to do it in a high-quality manner so that you actually enjoy listening to it, and we hope that we've actually accomplished that. We've been shooting for quality over quantity. As you may have noticed, we've gotten pretty good at that quality over quantity thing, considering we only do it once a month. So we're now going to shoot for a little bit more quantity. That's right. Once every three weeks. I I agree to this kicking and screaming, but I agree to this. So the next episode is probably going to be out around November 8th. Also, if you listen to our promo, you know that our method of selecting topics is to find the most misunderstood topics we can find and then try to make them better understood. So if you happen to run into a topic that's extremely poorly understood, please let us know and we'll see if we can research it for you. And finally, for those of you who will be in Denver this weekend, we wanted to let you know that we will be at Mile High Con Saturday night, October 22nd, promoting intellectual icebergs. 
Unfortunately, we will not have the brains in time to toss out, but we will be leaving some CDs at the freebie table. Hope to see you there. And Tiffany will probably be in a very sexy outfit, so be sure not to miss her. It won't be nearly as sexy as Rob's outfit. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> see you all later. Intellectual Icebergs is produced by Robert and Tiffany Raplin. If you enjoy our show, please vote for us on Podcast Alley, Podcast Pickle, and Digital Podcasting. The music for the intro and credits is Speaking in Electronic Tongues by Synthetic Movements. The music for the first segment is Pixelized by Chris Harvey, an artist you can find on Magnatunes. The music for the interlude is Outbreak by Flipdog. The music for the second segment is The Road Home by Terrence May. The makers of Intellectual Icebergs would like to remind you... Please visit us at www.intellectualicebergs.org. Intellectual Icebergs is released under a Creative Commons license and is an Ankh Infinity production.